we all see the professional athletes online, on social media, talking about what they eat, showing us what they eat, looking at the supplements they promote, and how it all comes together in both training and on race day. But should we try to eat like the pros? What can we learn from what professional athletes do? And what are the consequences potentially, good, bad, or otherwise, of trying to emulate what professional athletes do and getting our nutrition ideas from elite and professional athletes? Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. The sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping onto Google to try and find answers for. So we'll break that question down, invite a guest expert or athlete to add their perspective as well. Today it is episode 55A, Should I Eat Like the Pros? And we're joined by our guest, Associate Professor Greg Cox. But before we get to Greg, first of all, Steph, happy birthday for the other day. How do you feel about all of this? I was just thinking when we did our intro of having over 30 years combined experience, we're going to have to update that in a couple of years' time to 40 years. It's a bit scary. (laughs) Well, I am feeling only a smidgen younger than you, Al. (laughs) So um, we're both fish in the sea. Mm -hmm. So both have birthdays this time of the year. And, yeah, it was very spoiled yesterday. And what about your birthday? How How was that? Yeah, it was okay. I Unfortunately, like you, I had to do a bit of work on that day, which I was trying to avoid, but that's all right. Now, in terms of updates and announcements, I don't think there's a lot this week to, to talk about. Obviously, last week we announced with thelongmunch.com that we'd have a whole bunch of resources available there probably sometime in April. It's probably going to be later April rather than early <laughs> April now. It keeps uh, getting pushed back, unfortunately, because things are, are pretty hectic for both of us right at the moment. But yeah, that's definitely in the pipeline. So that'll include a blog that goes up on there, which covers many of the topics that we cover here on the podcast, but also a Long Munch membership, which is coming probably towards the end of April as well, which will include an ebook and then access to a whole bunch of resources, which we'll announce as we get closer to the time. Mm, yep. Mm. Excellent. Excited yep. about that. Yeah, definitely. And just a reminder that if you have a particular question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have a particular topic that you'd like to see covered or if you just have some general feedback for us or suggestions, we'd love to hear that as well. Today. So, yeah, we're joined by Associate Professor Greg Cox. And Greg has been on the podcast before, and I haven't got the episode number in front of me, which is a bit naughty, but it was, Mm. is plant-based better was the topic. And I think off the top of my head, I'm going to guess maybe 22A. Steph, you can look it up while I'm introducing Greg. (laughs) But Greg is a fellow of Sports Dietitians Australia and Associate Professor at Bond University on the Gold Coast. Until about a year ago, he worked over a course of about two decades with Triathlon Australia's elite athlete programs, firstly through his role as the Senior Sports Dietitian at the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, 
And then when that department kind of changed after the Rio Olympics, he was then employed directly by Triathlon Australia as their nutrition lead. And Greg's worked with many of Australia's Olympic and Paralympic triathletes over that time and has attended multiple Olympic Games as part of the support for triathlon. And many of the athletes he's worked with, he's actually had the privilege of working with them over a long period of time, in some cases their entire career, from their junior development days right through to Olympic Games. So he's had that experience to be able to observe how their nutrition needs change as the athletes have developed over time from a junior into an elite senior athlete. And Greg's also competed himself as a professional in Ironman, and that's the surf life-saving kind of Ironman. But he has also done triathlon himself. He's been a very high-level age group triathlete. He won the Olympic Distance World Championship in his age group back in 2009. He's competed at the World Championships for Ironman in Kona, amongst others. And Steph's just indicated to me that it was episode <laughs> 22A that Greg was on around his plant-based better. So without further ado, I think we'll get into this discussion with Greg and find out, should we try and eat like the pros? Let's do it. Greg Cox, welcome back to The Long Munch. Thanks uh, for having me back. Thanks for coming back. So we've had you on the podcast previously in episode 22A, which was asking the question, is plant-based better? But today we're talking about another topic that actually arose from a masterclass for sports dietitians that you and Al ran back in November 2022, and that was on endurance sports nutrition. So first of all, can you tell the listeners a bit about what that masterclass was all about? Yeah, that was a a half-day workshop that we ran down in Melbourne it's all a bit of a blur, actually. Like it's, it felt like a sprint finish to the end of 2022 to last year. Uh, but in that um, that masterclass, both Al and myself reflected on our engagement in endurance sports, um, in managing athletes around their nutritional needs, like over the time course of their their career. So it was a half day workshop. We had experienced dietitians in the room. We facilitated some discussion around how you might manage and some of the key aspects that we have put in play with regards to our support of uh, endurance athletes over the years. Yeah, yeah. Anything to add, Al? Yeah, no, I think that that's the the gist of it. I guess one of the, when we, we talked about a lot of different topics and it was actually Ben Parker who was at that workshop that suggested we do this as a podcast actually. And, you know, some of those topics that we covered in the workshop we have covered before on the podcast, we thought well, there's no point rehashing those. But one of the areas that we did spend a bit of time around was talking about, I guess, how much energy or calories an athlete uses, and also looking, I guess, throughout the workshop at some sort of comparisons between elite and non-elite athletes. And I guess that comes to sort of the topic that we're talking about today, and why you know elite athletes might have different nutritional needs to non-elite athletes and you know if you are a a non-elite athlete which is the majority of us should we be trying to look at what the pros are doing and and take that as inspiration or copy what they're doing or are their needs just so different that we're you know potentially doing ourselves a disservice by doing that yeah yeah that is the question today is should i eat like the the pros so, Greg, you worked with Triathlon Australia over about 
20 years and you attended the Olympic Games with the team. You also worked with some of those triathletes from their junior development days right through to them becoming world-class athletes and Olympians. So can you talk us through, I guess, the key changes that occur when an athlete builds to that elite level um, and that impact on the actual nutritional needs? Sure. It's a, it's a very good question and, and I consider myself to be really fortunate having watched athletes and worked alongside athletes over a long period of time. Like that, the, the gestation of a, an elite endurance athlete takes you know, several years and some of the athletes that I've worked with, you know, they were contesting Olympics over three Olympic cycles. So you, know, you would get to know them probably three or four years out from their first Olympic experience and then watch them you know, engage in competition over two or three Olympic cycles. And, and athletes, I guess, enter that, that elite sphere of competition in different stages of development and different ages. You know, in triathlon, for instance, you know, some of the athletes would tackle their first Olympics, you know, in their late teenage years or their early 20s, whereas others that I worked alongside were well into their 20s before that they got that Olympic opportunity. One of the things that I guess I noticed mostly were the physical changes that occur with an endurance athlete, particularly the female athletes over the course of their careers. And this is specific to triathlon, but I don't know that it's too different in sports like cycling and running. But certainly in triathlon, you get what I would consider to be an underpowered younger athlete. And so their physique or their body weight, for instance, um, they might be similar body weight to an elite athlete, but their body composition typically is different. And they will aspire often, and coaches that support them will aspire to an athlete that looks more like an, an elite athlete. So uh, a body composition that's a leaner body composition. And so the, the, the obvious interpretation for most people quickly is that the athlete needs to get leaner. And so the focus is around strategies that might promote changes in body fat levels mm. to achieve that. But what you then end up with is a light, underpowered athlete because they don't have the muscle mass to contest against the truly elite athletes, which are you know six, seven, eight years further developed along the track. So having track body composition and and, and and body weight over the careers of a lot of athletes, um, endurance athletes, they often maintain a similar body mass over the course of their career. Mm -hmm. Early on, if they attempt to change body composition quickly, they might drop weight um, and they'll reduce their body fat, but essentially they won't have the lean mass or the fat-free mass to contest against the more developed athletes. So what you tend to see is that over that course of a, a long career, the athlete, the female athlete, and, and I, I guess I saw this really commonly with the female athletes, was that they would be the same weight at the end of their career, but their body composition was quite different and that, and in that they were leaner. And so people go, oh, well, you know, they, they have reduced body fat stores. Yeah, that's correct, but they also have increased lean mass i.e. muscle mass and so 
you know, the focus on your strategies long term need to be to support an athlete to capture exposures where the exercise is driving changes in lean mass and capturing those and accumulating those over a long period of time to achieve a body composition that then allows the athlete to be competitive at the highest highest level. The male athletes often depend depending and that point that I made earlier it depends where they enter the physicality of the athlete when they enter the pathway. I saw athletes undertake different exposures and different changes in their body composition over their careers. As they train and the more training exposure that they get and their their ability to, to to handle that training increases as they as they mature and as they become more exposed to the training. The training will drive a, a physique changes that align with the demands of the sport. And that change, Greg, in terms of you know lean mass and fat mass, it sounds like from what you're describing there, that's not a change that occurs because they deliberately have like a gym program going, we need to develop more lean mass and go out and do that. That's more just a consequence of hours and hours of training accumulating over three, four, five, seven years, whatever it is. Yeah, and I think people often think you need to have chain, you know, you need to have a direct strength and conditioning program to, you know, to acquire those changes. But I actually think like in a whole variety of different training modalities that a triathlete might undertake. So if they're doing um, strength efforts on the bike or if they're doing heel repeats on the run or if they put band and paddles on in the swim, they're all strength components. And in and when you read it in a program, it's often related as strength work. And so if you put the right nutrition around that training exposure, well, then you will get that slow accumulation and change in lean mass. And some of the changes that I have seen have been done with only a maintenance program for strength and conditioning. That might be one or two times a week. And a strength and conditioning program one or two times a week doesn't drive changes in, in lean mass. So it's it's those typical activities that they're doing and the modifications that coaches make that is, that introduce strength elements to the training session itself is what will drive the change. And I, I guess a really obvious point, and I think for me, I think about things holistically, is that, you know, the, 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 the exercise is what drives the the, the change in body composition like runners um, they look like runners because they do a lot of running you know and and I, I've worked with runners and they you know the variety of, of how they approach their nutrition is really really varied they look very similar though and their training programs while they might be different they're not that different and they do a lot of running so similarly a strength-based athlete that is like a power lifter, they do a lot of lifting of weights. That's why they look like a power lifter. Their nutrition adds to that, obviously, um, but you can't look or do what a power lifter does just by eating like one. And so the, the exercise that you know, people are doing will optimise their physique for that individual. And, and in sports like triathlon, more so than probably running and cycling, you do get a variety of different physiques um, that are successful in triathlon. Maybe I, I should say, like in cycling, depending on what role they play will influence the, the type of um, physique that, that that athlete is as well. So you do see varied 
physiques in those sports as well, come to think of it. Yeah, yeah. And what's the time scale that, you know, these changes occur over, like would, would an age grouper develop these changes if, say, they quit their job tomorrow and started training like a pro for six months or are we talking, you know, like years and years of accumulated training adaptations? I think the changes that you see in body fat, for instance, are much quicker. So you would see that change quite quickly. And certainly um, we would see a seasonal change in body fat stores. So, and sometimes the interpretation, coach, sports scientist, dietitian might be, oh, wow, this athlete, like they've come off a period of, of uh, where they've had an injury or they've had a break and their body fat stores uh, have increased. And, you know, sometimes, and certainly in the past, there's been then a real focus, oh, we need to you know, work on that. Well, often that temporal change in body fat stores is just a reflection on the individual's fitness. So if you got them to do a fitness test of any sort of um, measure, they wouldn't be particularly fit. And so you see changes seasonally in body fat stores, but that that accumulation of lean tissue that occurs to optimise performance, like it takes, in what I've experienced, years to, to progress and develop uh, from those elite juniors through to being an elite senior athlete. Um, and it has to marry against the demands of the competition as well because while you've got athletes that are evolving, you've got sports that are evolving as well. So in terms of triathlon, it's been an Olympic sport since 2000, the Sydney Olympics. And because it became an Olympic sport, the Olympic distance triathlon became an internationally recognised opportunity for all countries, um, particularly affluent countries. So the competitive mix across countries in, increased as, as well. And that's then created a change in the dynamics to be successful in, in those sport in those sports. And, and small rule changes within the sport also have led to specific physique requirements and physical requirements that are needed to be successful in sport like triathlon. And, and they're different to that that you need to be an a age group athlete. Like an age group athlete doesn't need to do what a you know what an elite athlete needs to do to win mm. like the priorities are different yeah yeah and one of the things that you talked about at the workshop greg and i know we've had a few different conversations around this particularly last year we did a like a webinar series on sort of physiology for endurance athletes as well is i guess you, you talked about the sort of the physique changes throughout someone's career as they go from sort of beginning through to sort of elite or professional level one of the other changes i know you've talked about and and reflected on a lot in the last couple of years is i guess the change in the ability to use energy or, or burn calories essentially do you want to talk us through that sure so I guess with repeated exposures over a long period of time, what you see athletes able to do is on any given session, they are able to do more work in that session and they're able to then recover from that session more effectively to do more work in the next session. And so the ability 
for an elite athlete to complete work quickly. When I say work, you know, let's think about it as covering a certain distance in a particular time frame. That amount of work, they're able to do that more quickly. So they're able to burn fuel more quickly than like a, a lesser trained individual. So a younger athlete and or say an age group athlete. So if they're able to burn fuel more quickly, their dietary requirements are increased that above than what they were when they were a younger athlete or say an age group athlete. The younger athlete, the one thing that's important to consider um, is their development as well. They're still growing, so they might have additional requirements for that. But one of the things that I've often heard athletes reflect on as they mature is, you know, they could do a long run and they'll reflect on and say, well, geez, if I had have done that five or seven or eight years ago, you know, take me days to recover from that. But they can do that session. They can do it more quickly and then they can also recover it to do their next session as well. So the changes that happen, you know, within the muscle, um, and I guess one of the things that I've always reflected on and I, you know, there's only, I have an understanding, I'm not a muscle metabolism physiologist, but certainly in response to endurance training, you get an increase in the, in the number of mitochondria, which is the energy you know, energy burning component of, of, of your muscle. So you get mitochondrial biogenesis. And so that, and you know, with that, you get a whole range of adaptations that occur within the muscle that align the fuel in the muscle more closely to that mitochondria as well. And so, you know, you get better fuel storage, you get increased number of mitochondria to burn fuel. So you're effectively you know, developing a muscle that can burn fuel more quickly than it could, you know, in previous, in previous years. If you have a period of detraining, some of those changes, like the content of enzymes that burn fuel, for instance, will change reasonably rapidly. Um, but some of the structural changes that occur within the muscle, you know, do 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 um, persist for you know long longer term. And so, even an elite athlete will have changes in their ability to burn fuel, and that will you know, um, reflect their fitness. But I guess there's an accumulation over the course of, of, of their careers. One of the most amazing sessions that I watched a couple of triathlon boys do was just before the 2016, and both of these boys finished in the top 10, is that they, they did an hour of running and they ran about 18 kilometres within the 60 minutes. It was a continuous amount of work and they ran the first 30 minutes at a particular speed and then drop speed over the, the next you know 30 30 minutes 18 kilometers in a training run in for a triathlete and it was it was hot conditions it was done on um it was done on like gravel roads and undulating surfaces and uneven so they were mm -hmm. moving and there was a walk bit of a you know, light warm up, but then it was like, okay, let's let's go, and they were off. And so, those two boys, we had supports around them simply just to meet their energy needs because you know that type of session, when they were younger, they just simply couldn't do that session, and that that type of session would be beyond the reach of almost all age group tri triathletes like to to do to do that amount of work that quickly. 
And so it doesn't mean that an endurance, like a less trained athlete can't burn the amount of energy. It just takes them much longer to do it. Um, and that's the same for when you've got an athlete that's racing. If they do the same distance of race, they'll probably burn a similar amount of fuel. It's just that the elite athlete will burn it much more quickly. And so when you're trying to feed that athlete, you're also thinking, okay, well, they're burning fuel more quickly. I need to be more aggressive with an elite and perhaps be a bit more conservative with a lesser trained ind individual. And also then align that with what they would typically do in their training as well. So you can't be ultimately too optimistic with an elite athlete if they aren't, if they're not aggressive in their training sessions or they don't have, you know, not familiar with those strategies in their training. But equally, you know, for a lesser trained individual that's doing a marathon, for instance, you don't want to apply the same guidelines that you might do to an, an elite athlete that's going to complete the race in half the amount of time. It doesn't, it doesn't make tangible sense to me at mm. least to, to to apply the same strategy. Yeah, yep. and it's interesting. Like I think from a practical level, when you talk about that amount of work you can do, I guess if it's on a bike, we generally you can think of that in terms of power output. So you know you can have two people doing a zone two ride or a zone three ride, like whatever intensity you want to prescribe. Um, but you know zone two for Pogacar is going to be I don't know two hundred and eighty watts or something. Whereas for most of it's probably going to be like 150 watts. And so, you know, he's putting out almost double the, the energy for the same relative intensity in terms of how hard it feels for him, how hard he has to work to produce that power. And when you've got younger, you know, athletes tr training or an age group athlete tr training with an endurance or with, with a better trained or more elite athlete, yeah, they're working relatively harder, right? If they're going out for a group ride with each other. Um, so the elite athlete rolls off the bike and goes, oh yeah, that was that was pretty easy. I'm ready for my afternoon session. Whereas the age group athlete, the more matured athlete, or you know, an older age group athlete, you know, that's, that's the intensity of that session. It's a higher, higher session. But to be successful as an age grouper, you don't need to do what an elite athlete does. And the race requirements are quite quite different so you need to take that into account i think with the training yeah. yeah yeah and so i guess that's the cycling side of things in terms of running i guess we think about it more in terms of pace yeah so again you know what pace do you maintain for any given relative intensity in terms of you know percentage of max heart rate or or percentage of vo2 max or how you know perceived exertion something like that and then i guess so there's two parts to that firstly is that the elite athlete is going to be able to essentially burn more calories for the same type of session in terms of, you know, that relative intensity, which is generally how it's going to be prescribed. And then I guess the other factor is the fact that the elite or professional athlete is probably training more hours per week as well, um, as you said, because they can recover between sessions better. They can actually do that. Plus, you know, if it's their career, they've got the time dedicated to be able to do that. They don't have to worry about work and other commitments potentially as well. And so, certainly for the elite triathletes, certainly the ones that I've worked with here in Melbourne, and I'm sure yours, the ones that you've worked with, Coxie, will be similar. You know, those guys would be doing, you know, a big week might be 25, 30 hours potentially of training in a week, as opposed to the, the non-elite athletes where a big week is maybe 15 hours, maybe 20 for some of the Ironman guys, something like that. And that 20 
is 20 at a lower pace, lower intensity, absolute intensity might be just as hard in terms of how they feel it, but they're actually burning less calories per minute or per hour of training and they're doing less hours of total training. So the total amount of calories they burn in the week is going to be substantially lower. And I think one of the other things I learned with that contrast to our of say an elite versus an age grouper is the schedule of their training week as well. And so, you know, if you're a serious age group triathlete, you, you may train 15, 20 hours a week. For most of those guys, you know, possibly half of that would be done on a Saturday and a Sunday. And whereas with an elite uh, athlete, you know, they're much more consistent over the course of the whole week. And, and, and that exposure early on in my career really got me thinking about like the guidelines, particularly around fueling, because at the, at the time that I came into sports nutrition, it was all about eating high carbohydrate, um, particularly if you're an endurance-based athlete. And that, that was partly because of the research that was done in the 70s and 80s that drove the, uh, the guidelines the sports nutrition guidelines. And there was a lot of focus on carbohydrate because we could measure it really well. Mm. And and I guess one of my early reflections was, oh, hold on a minute. Like, it's not just about, well, I'm an endurance athlete. I need to eat a high carbohydrate diet. It's about, well, when you do the exercise, you need to eat high carbohydrate. But when you're not doing the exercise, well, there's really no need to do that. So the interpretation of the guidelines needs to be done like on a day-to-day basis as opposed to a categorical, oh, you're an endurance athlete, well, then you eat this way. And that's become more personalised and the approach, I think, has become more specific. But nonetheless, it's an important reflection to, you know, remind yourself to accommodate for daily changes in training. You know, and the daily changes might be in preparation for or during the day of training. Um, and I would normally try to consolidate an athlete's eating when they were undertaking the, the training because then when they don't do the training, that extra food will then should come out of their dietary intake. So rather than catching up three days later, you know, putting it in around the training to support the actual training at the time that it's being performed. Mm. And so I guess if we think about that, and that's probably the, the first point of, you know, how nutritional needs of uh, elite or professional athletes are different from non-elite athletes is firstly that just the calorie needs are going to be dramatically different in a lot of cases, not necessarily always, but in, in most cases. You know, I've worked with elite females that I, I try to get them to eat what I refer to as beyond athlete normal. And so they might come in, they are in, engaged in endurance sport because they're good at it, and then they find early on that they've got success and they start progressing. But they're also connected perhaps with the notion that exercise is a healthy option as well. And you know, dietary choices, some dietary choices are also considered to be healthy so that you know, they like eating health-based like food, so, which is great. Um, and so, you know, plenty of fruit and vegetables, you know, they're particular about the grains that they choose. And that's like, that's an important element of, um, optimizing health and wellbeing, both in the general population and in the elite setting. But when you've got really high energy needs, sometimes it's about 
you know, trying to create an environment where those athletes feel comfortable to eat beyond what like their friends might eat, like that aren't elite athletes, that aren't undertaking 20 to 25 hours a week, and also to get their head around societal norms that exist particularly around females and you know, food, food intake and physique um, and physique uh, not requirements, but I guess physique ideals that they might see both within the sport and outside of the sport. So you, you can have an athlete that might consume say 14,000 kilojoules, you know, three and a half thousand calories or whatever, and their fibre intake's like 50 to 60 grams a day, and they virtually just can't eat any more food. Um, and then you start to worry about, well, how, how bioavailable are some of the nutrients, um, you know, with that sort of fibre intake. So sometimes you've got to customise the dietary intake and get them thinking around more compact, energy-dense type items that are aligned with, you know, sports nutrition goals. So it might be using like a liquid meal supplement or, a, you know, a specified sports um, food, for instance, like an, an energy bar um, so that they can compact energy in without, you know, particularly fibre so that they can meet their energy requirements. Mm, yeah. And so I think, again, thinking about how this might be or, or how maybe a non-elite athlete might view what an elite or professional athlete is doing, like if they're following an elite athlete on Instagram and they're looking at what they're eating because they're taking photos of their food and things, I guess they might be thinking a couple of things. It might be, geez, they eat unhealthy because if they eat the quote-unquote more healthier foods, as you said, they're going to get 60 grams of fibre a day. And, and I know, Steph, we chatted about this episode 40A, I think it was, is fibre my friend or enemy? Because it can be potentially both depending on the situation. And and so that can be one thing is that perception of, oh, they don't eat very healthy because of the type of food they need to eat to support that training volume that an elite athlete is doing that might not be so appropriate for a recreational or age group athlete. Okay, so beyond, I guess, energy and, and probably carbohydrates wrapped up in that, I think we've sort of talked about that already. Are there any other sort of nutritional requirements that you can think of, Greg, where you feel that maybe actually they're not that different between elite and non-elite athletes? Maybe I'll, I'll try to answer this in a different way, but I guess we've, we've covered off sort of energy and and carbohydrate. The other areas that, particularly in the elite setting, that we would often ensure uh, that had adequate both intake but also adequate reflection within their body was their iron status. That's probably, I see that more risk potentially for an elite athlete than uh, an age group athlete because of the the different environments that they're often competing in and the transition to different environments as well. In in the world of triathlon, you know, you've got athletes that are training in a variety of different environments and they're continually moving environments. And each time they move an environment, you know, they have to often change their like their location. And so with the location they have to, you know, then reset up their food environment as well. And most athletes that are full-time in you know, running sports, triathlon, even cycling to a lesser extent, you're probably travelling as a group, the food environment might be organised for you. But in those other sports, you're often having to create your own food environment, so you're self-catering. And so, you know, during those windows of being self, where they have to set up their food environment, often they'll travel 
training will start almost immediately, but they might not have like everything set up in their pantry and their, their typical food availability. And they might also be you know, training or moving to environments that are either hotter or they might be you know, training in environments at higher altitude as well. Something like, like iron, for instance, I think it's a risky nutrient for any endurance athlete, be it age group or, or, or elite. I think as an age grouper, it's, it's understanding your iron status, like at least annually, is probably an important step. And so going to the GP and in your annual checkup, asking to get your iron studies done, and typically that would be done routinely, but worth asking about. But certainly an elite athlete, you might assess that more often throughout the course of the year, particularly ahead of vulnerable periods of, of travel. So I think iron's probably the other one. The other, a lot of other nutrients uh, will come into the diet as energy in, intake increases. Um, so on the whole, they would typically account for a change in energy intake. So, so this is like vitamins and minerals, for example. So, you know, you're an elite athlete because they're just eating more food. Generally, they're going to get more B vitamins, vitamin C, all those kind of things, more of the, the minerals and so on. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we don't know. There's no specific guidelines to say that elite athletes have higher requirements for these. They probably do, but they're going to get them in most cases anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What about competition? So do the pros have, you know, very different competition needs to non-elite athletes? Sure. Like I think, uh, I mean, the events that an elite athlete undertakes in triathlon for at least, uh, they might be the same distance, but the rules can be often different. You can have drafting versus non-drafting. That will change the requirements, you know, of the event itself. Again, going back to an earlier point that I made, you know, they can do the same event, but an elite athlete is going to do it much more quickly than a non-elite athlete. So how you interpret the guidelines need to be reflective of that, more aggressive perhaps when you're dealing with an elite athlete, less aggressive with a, a, a less trained athlete. And I think the interesting thing with, you know, within that age group population, we've sort of talked about them as a group of people, but there's really a variety of ranges, right? Like in what makes up an age group athlete. And even with marathoning, for instance, I think the average marathon of the major marathons throughout the world, like in North America, for instance, you know, the average marathon time is getting a bit slower like, than what it was. But that means that, the, to me, the participant base has increased. Mm. So you've still got, like, non-elite individuals running two hours and 50 minutes, you know, three hours or whatever for a marathon, which is mm. quick running, right? And then you've got age group athletes that run six hours or seven hours. Now, they're different individuals, like very different individuals. Um, so across that bracket of what we consider non-elite, there's a whole range of, range of training abilities and competition strategies that you would apply. Uh, I'm just thinking as you're saying that, Greg, in terms of like you're using carbohydrate as an example, and we had a a great discussion with Aska Yerkendrup about you know, how much carbohydrate do I need during training or competition and you know, around grams per hour and that kind of thing. And, and I guess if we think about it, you know, you, as you mentioned, like you have people doing the same distance. So, so the overall calories that they might go through or expend might be similar, but you can have, say, the elite guy, and I'm just using these as nice round numbers rather than a specific event as an example, or it might be a three-hour event. 
And so they might consume 80 grams an hour of carbohydrates, so they're going to get in 240 grams of carbs over their three hours. Then you might have someone who's a bit slower and they do it in four hours, but if they can you know, lower that to 60 grams an hour of carbs, they're still getting in 240 grams of carbs during the same distance event. And then you have someone who's slower again, maybe six hours, they might only go at 40 grams an hour of carbs. They're still getting in 240 grams of carbs for the same event. They're just getting it in you know, over a longer period of time, but it's the same amount of carbs in total and they're expending the same amount of calories total. So yeah, totally agree with you. As you said, you know, the more elite someone is probably the more aggressive they need to start to go with some of these fueling strategies and things because essentially they're doing the same amount of work compressed into a shorter amount of time. Yeah, and I think, you know, that that pace at which they do the event, now, like if it is like the example that you just provided, which may be like a marathon, for instance, these strategies that you you know you you would use with the elite or the more elite the quicker athlete you know you would try to ensure that they optimize every opportunity that they get because they're running at a higher speed so the, the tolerance is likely lower and the opportunity to actually consume the food or, or fluid is lower as well so it might be you know i want you to be aggressive at every aid station to get some carbs in because they've got a higher hourly intake to achieve. Whereas the slower athlete, you might say, look, I only want you to attempt to drink a sports drink at every second aid station. Because if, if they did it at every aid station, they'd end up, and because they're going slower, they're moving through the, the aid station at a slower pace, they've got more opportunity. So if they optimise their opportunity at every aid station, they probably consume an intake well above what they need or well above what they can tolerate. And, and so they're the nuances. And sometimes when I've seen feedback from an athlete, when they've seen a sports nutrition professional, they haven't really teased that element out, that practical component of well, what does it look like from a feeding perspective for someone that's going slower versus someone that's going more quickly. Yeah, yeah. All right, just to, to finish up, a couple of other things I want to get your thoughts on I guess the first one is sometimes there's a perception probably from non-elite athletes that elite and professional athletes use every possible supplement under the sun that they can get their hands on um, or that they rely more on specifically formulated sports nutrition products, whether it's gels, drinks, bars, all that kind of thing. Do you think that's really the case or a bit of a misconception? Yeah, I think social media has a bit to do with that. I, I do believe I've probably seen more variety in supplement choice in non-elite athletes and what I've seen in elite. So I, I do think that elite athletes with the right supports, they tend to use evidence-based supplements to support both their performance and their health and well-being more appropriately, but they tend to use maybe less. Whereas sometimes what I've seen with lesser trained athletes is because there's so much social media exposure and that's where they're getting the nutrition information from the repertoire of those supplements is, is you know it's a like there's a, a large number of them and so yeah i don't think that's particularly true the sports that i've worked with heavily like for long periods of time triathlon and sprint canoeing even though it's a sprint event three and a half minutes or whatever um and shorter i do a lot of endurance training we would be particularly focused on an annual plan around their supplements and there'd be 
periods of time throughout the year where they wouldn't be taking any supplements. And same for, for, for triathlon. I guess the risks around doping is a real risk that needs to be considered. The, the other thing about doping risk is that some of the things that we picked up for doping, they're not particularly healthy for individuals as well. So recreational athletes probably should be as, as aware. It's not all about performance. Health and wellbeing is important as well. So yeah, I don't, I don't believe so. Certainly when you've got athletes training heavily, the requirements around formulated sports foods, that, that requirement probably is increased. Um, particularly just to meet the practicalities of the day-to-day -day eating requirements. And that's probably the thing where when I've spent the money of a sport, that's where I've invested the money, like around that, that supplementary sports foods uh, or had partnerships with organisations that provide um, access to those products. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and so it's just, I guess, about using supplements to get more fuel in for the extra or the additional work that's being done in that that scenario and i think just thinking about it and i can't remember who it was might have even been emma jeff coach steph we were talking to about supplements a little while ago on the podcast and and she was talking about the fact that you know a lot of elite athletes uh, are spruiking various supplements due to paid partnerships online but they don't actually use the supplement themselves they just sort of give the impression that they do the, the final thing i wanted to ask about and it was sort of something that you, you mentioned earlier on but it was around that sort of sports nutrition guidelines and the fact that the guidelines don't kind of break out different recommendations for, say, elite versus non-elite athletes. Is that an issue in your mind or is it simply that we just need to be careful of how we interpret those guidelines and we may need to interpret them differently for elite athletes versus non-elite athletes? So if you've got someone just looking up the ACSM guidelines online, which you can do, or you see various people that have written various articles online saying, you know, these are the guidelines of how much carbs you need per day or something like that, I guess how do you interpret that or do you need to interpret that differently for an elite versus a non-elite athlete? Yeah, by all means, it's important to interpret both as a clinician, practitioner working with an athlete and, and also an athlete to try to navigate that, you know, the, the amount of information, the nutrition information. I think I, I read recently, like last year, there was three and a half thousand sports nutrition articles published in 2022. Like, I didn't read all those. Al, Steph, did you guys read that? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, nope. it's impossible, right? And so we, we are subject to also of selective reading. And then there's this, that's outside of social media, so that's published articles. So, yeah, the nuances, I think, of interpreting the guidelines as they're written are, are important considerations. If you look at the carbohydrate guidelines, you know, the ones that are probably the sports nutrition guidelines at least are most hinged around. You know, they're reflective of both, there's some con consideration around obviously the duration of the daily sort of hours of training and some consideration around the intensity of the activity as well. And, and then they're expressed as um, grams per kilogram body weight. So I guess the first con like consideration is, well, okay, not everyone's body weight is made up of the same composition. So it's important to then consider the composition of the body, their body weight. And so having an understanding is important because, you know, it's grams per kilo, 
but it's really there to be designed around the components of your body that use the fuel, which is your lean mass or your fat-free mass. And so if you've got a higher percent body fat versus someone that's a lower percent body fat, well, then you need to interpret those guidelines you know, diff differently. And certainly, you know, there has been a systematic review done by two people much smarter than me, but what they did in this systematic review is they looked at um, how much carbs do you need to fuel or to optimise the, the carbohydrate content of muscle in variously trained individuals, so highly trained versus moderately trained and lesser trained individuals. And to optimise the muscle glycogen content or the carbohydrate content of an elite athlete, you need more carbohydrate to do that because the capacity to store carbohydrate is increased because of the training response. So applying a carbohydrate intake guideline to optimise glycogen stores in a moderately trained versus elite trained, if you applied the same guidelines based on per kilo body weight, potentially you could underfuel an elite athlete and overfuel a lesser trained individual. So understanding body composition, I think, is important. Like I said, exercise intensity is somewhat considered within the guidelines, but an important consideration nonetheless. And trying to understand that as a clinician or, a, or an individual is important when you're interpreting the guidelines, both from a within day, so over the course of the day, as well as within the session. Mm. Just just to wrap up on the, the guidelines side of things, I think, you know, you talk about the intensity there, and that's one of the tricky bits in the guidelines is that, Firstly, the intensity described is a little vague, but I guess people interpret that in terms of relative intensity rather than absolute intensity. So, you know, what's a moderate session for me is different to what's a moderate session for an Olympic athlete in terms of, you know, the carbohydrate and calorie requirements. So as you said, that's where it's going to tend to potentially lead to underfueling in the elite athlete, but possibly overfueling in the, um, the non-elite athlete if it's interpreted extremely literally. So yeah, just important point there. All right, well, I'm going to hand over to Steph now, and she is going to finish us off with our bonus round. All right, awesome. So we're going to build on our questions we asked you last time, Greg. So what's the one sporting event that you are most looking forward to in 23? Uh, good question. I'm a bit of a sports head, so I like to watch and engage in different sport. Probably uh, Bell's WSL. This year, I, I think I'm coming down to Torquay for that. So that, that'll be a big highlight if I get get down there for, for that. So that's over the Easter Easter weekend. Um, I'm an avid watcher of the WSL and they've changed the format in the last uh, two years to win the overall championship. So, yeah, that, I think that'll be the event that I'll be looking most forward to this year. Beautiful, beautiful. And biggest sports nutrition fail in your own personal athletic career? Yep, good question. I did think about this the other day and probably an easy one. Um, <clears throat> when I, I think when I was turning 45, I decided on a Friday like to do a race on a Saturday. And my biggest mistake was it was a multi-adventure, like the multi-discipline adventure race, you know, kayaking like 20Ks, running like, I don't know, it was probably 25Ks, um, cycling, mountain biking. And 
one of my friends told me about it like on the Friday. I didn't have a mountain bike at that point, so I borrowed a mountain bike. Um, I've, I've done both surf life saving and obviously in triathlon, so you know, have the skill range to do all those activities. It was a it, it was a funny event because I was I was competitive. Oh, that's right. There was swimming involved in it as well. So I was competitive at the first part. The, the, the I used a spec ski, which is a surf ski, and all these guys had ocean skis, so it was a bit of a disadvantage for me. And we had to do an overland carry. Now, like a surf ski, like a spec ski, minimum weight has to be 18 kilos. The ocean skis, they're, they're like 10 or 11. So these guys are running. I'm, I'm like carrying what I felt like was... Um, anyway, I go into the mountain biking. Uh, I did the run, hadn't been doing much running. It was like 15 or 20 k's, like over mountainous terrain. I had, I started getting doms in the run. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always ominous. Yeah, I get on, get on the mountain bike, and I had mountain bike shoes, but I didn't have a mountain bike, so I borrowed that. I was going up this really steep, you know, um, climb, and my my shoe like pulled away from the base of my my um, my pedal because my shoes were old yeah. shoes, and they just fully degloved themselves. Anyway, got through that just, and then I'm on the final run, and I go through this aid station. My wife gives me what I thought was water. And I could hear her saying, that's Coke, but I'd already started splashing it on my head. And so I've just emptied like this 600 mil Coke straight on top of me. Yeah. So that was to cap my day off. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Finished it. It was, you know, four hour event. Struggled to walk for, you know, three or four days, but I felt certainly like I was 45 that day. Yeah. (laughs) Felt old. Yeah. Um, and is there a sport you'd love to try but have never had the chance? Are you going to take up mountain biking now? Or well, I've, I, I've done a peer, you know, I've done a block of mountain biking in, in my career when I lived in Can- Canberra. Um, you know, we'd do that. It was fa- fantastic in, in mm. places like Canberra. Um, yeah, the, probably the one thing I've never done is high altitude um, mountaineering. I've read a lot in that space. Like I'll watch whatever I can. But certainly my wife thinks you're never doing that. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, I've got to get into that at some point. The tenaciousness of those athletes, uh, like it just and the discomfort that they can put up with, I you know, that's something I've been happy to do in my career as a dietitian, but also I think in my sport. So yeah, that that'd be one activity that I'd love love to to to, to challenge myself to do. And What's getting you the most excited about sports nutrition in the future? I think one of the things that probably has got me most excited is to try to, to discovering ways that we can better understand that connection between like nutrition and exercise. And, you know, I've always been a little jealous of other professions, so particularly physiology, where they get to measure the response to exercise, you know, much more closely than we do and we've used tools that are often time intensive uh, for an athlete um, and also the provider to understand that connection so things like dietary records or food diaries that sort of thing so looking at different ways in which we can explore that relationship and then provide you know more quantitative feedback to 
coaches, athletes, um, and clinicians. Uh, so an area of research that I'm in at the moment is looking at the use of continuous glucose monitors in sport. Uh, we just released a review paper, which is an open access paper. So that means that everyone can you know, read that if they want, um, both scientists and practitioners and athletes. And whether or not that's a tool that can actually provide insight to that understanding and that connection between dietary intake and exercise. So to me, I sort of think, will I've got time in my career to explore that? And so, yeah, that's something that I'm really eager to do over the next, you know, five to ten years because those devices are only going to become more readily available and encouraged to be used by athletes. At the moment, we don't understand if they provide any insight to that fueling alignment. Uh, while they might be important in uh, populations such as people living with diabetes, sure, to get better glycemic control, but whether or not they mean anything to an elite athlete or a recreational athlete at this point, we don't know. And what's the best book you've read or podcast you listened to in 2022? Well, I mean, you've got to say the long months, right? Yeah. Um, I didn't even need to encourage that. No, that's a good one. Um, I guess one of the most interesting books I've read uh, in recent times was uh, Where Men Win Glory, which is about a guy, Pat Tillman, uh, and it was written by John Krakauer. And John Krakauer is well known for his work. He wrote both in Into Thin Air and also Into the Wild. He writes now also adventure writer but also writes in areas of social justice. Um, and that particular book, Pat, Pat was a um, NFL player that then went to the army and I won't tell you the rest of the story, but it's a very interesting read. And what I liked about the book was the narration of Pat's life and he was obviously an athlete and what sport and how he engaged with sport as well. Like I really resonated with me just how, you know, through his life events and exposure, like he was a very tenacious athlete or physically had to work really hard to optimise his performance in, in, in the NFL, but also just how important, you know, he took his role on as, you know, back into society as well. So I think to me that that book was it's a great book to read if you've had the chance. Um, and I've read most of John's, John's work because the work that he's gone into is a, a really you know, different sort of view on, on, on a lens around sport, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Greg. It's been a really interesting discussion and, and hopefully gives people a bit of clarity about, you know, maybe what we can learn from elite athletes, but I guess some of the caveats around trying to, I guess, replicate or copy what elite or professional athletes do if you're not sort of training at that amount. And yeah, as we said, it's kind of playing the ball as it lies and, you know, looking at your own situation and your own needs as an individual rather than worrying too much about what other people are doing. So thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank you very much, Greg. So I think I can take from that that I probably should step back and stop eating like a pro. Um, <laughs> Al, would you agree? Yes, yes. We won't go there again. <laughs> it's been said enough, Steph. But you and me both, I think that's what I can add to that. Yep.
but yeah, I guess our question today was, should I eat like the pros? And I guess the the simple answer is no. Um, but I guess the question is, why is that the case? So I guess the first thing is that we know that elite athletes are generally going to be training more hours per week. And also, they're generally training at a higher level. And what I mean by that is that for any given intensity, whether it's you know, a particular zone or it's you know at threshold or at a particular percentage of max heart rate or whatever way you want to define it, you know, rating of perceived exertion, whatever, they're generally going to be working harder in absolute terms at each of those particular sort of intensities. So, you know, a power output will be higher for the same zone, pace will be faster for the same percentage of max heart rate if you're running, all those sorts of things. And so elite athletes, generally speaking, will not only be burning more calories or carbs per minute or per hour for the same type of training, that a non-elite athlete is doing, they're doing more hours of training across the week. So you put those two things together and you can see that the carbohydrate and total calorie needs of elite athletes are going to be far greater than what they are for non-elite athletes as a general rule. The other thing we also see with elite athletes is one of the adaptations to you know years of accumulated training and one of the things that makes elite athletes the way they are is that they're going to have a greater storage capacity for glycogen so that's the the muscle store of carbohydrate and so this means that they actually need more carbohydrate to actually fully load the battery so to speak and because of their ability to use energy they're going to unload that battery or drain the battery faster as well so they need more to top it up and it's going to go down and flatten quicker, so to speak. The other aspect of that is that from a um, guideline point of view, we tend to think about you know carbohydrate in grams per kilo of body weight per day, if it's just generally, or even if it's around carbohydrate loading, the numbers are just higher. But body weight is obviously made up of fat mass and fat-free mass. And again, this is a generalization, but as a general rule, the elite athletes will probably have a lower percentage body fat. So therefore, fat-free mass, which is the bit that's made up or the difference is made up by muscle usually, that determines that storage capacity for glycogen or the ability to use fuel is going to be a greater proportion of that body weight. So again, putting that together plus just a generally greater storage capacity as an adaptation to training the elite athletes are going to need to go to the higher ends of those nutrition guidelines around carbohydrate compared to the non-elite athletes who could potentially get away towards the lower end of those ranges that are given. And I guess if we think about those ranges and where they come from and who they're intended for, I think is a really important point because it's something that we don't really think about too much. The guidelines around how much carbohydrate we should eat per day are generally based on an intensity which is described in relative terms so a moderate intensity or high intensity or low intensity and you know my moderate intensity is different to an olympian's moderate intensity so we need to bear that in mind so who is it actually aimed for whose moderate intensity do these guidelines fit well my best guess at this is it's likely framed based on the research participants that were in the studies that led to those guidelines and they generally speaking will usually be high level but not elite athletes and so what I mean by that is if we think about running for example that might be a male runner who can do a marathon sort of sub three hours but not you know sub 225 or something like that and for females it might be a sub three and a half hour marathon runner but probably not a sub three hour runner for example in cycling it might be the a grade club cyclist or 
maybe that elite domestic level, certainly here in Australia, into you know the National Road Series, that kind of level of cyclist is probably where those guidelines are originally intended for. And for triathlon, it might be, say, those age groupers who are trying to finish maybe top 10 in their age group and qualify for you know, world champs in you know, Kona for Ironman or the 70.3 world champs or whatever it is, um, Olympic distance and so forth. So they're probably the level of athlete that those guidelines are best pitched at. And so what you tend to see is that for elite level athletes, those guidelines may end up under fueling them slightly. And so they may need to go to the top of those ranges or even beyond that. Whereas for you know non-elite athletes who are not at that level, then possibly they need to not only go for the lower end of those ranges, but sometimes even below the lower end of those ranges, particularly the daily carbohydrate one, I think. And as Greg said really nicely, you know, that's where that sort of periodization of carbohydrate comes. You need that fuel when you're doing that work, but you also don't want too much fuel when you're not doing that work. And so again, that's where probably the difference comes between the elite and the non-elite athletes is the elite athletes are doing more work more often compared to the non-elite athletes. Now, at the same time, the elite athletes sometimes you'll see on social media can get away with underfueling their training a bit as well. And we spoke about this with Asker Jokendrup on his podcast episode, I think it was 39A, around how much carbohydrate should I have during training or racing. And he talked about the fact that the pro cyclist might actually go out deliberately for a five or six hour ride and, and underfuel quite spectacularly. And so you might see things about this on social media and think that that's the norm for elite athletes. So I guess firstly, it's not the norm for elite athletes. They'll do that occasionally, but not regularly. They just, it wouldn't be sustainable if they did it all the time. And secondly, you know, they're much more adapted at using fat as a fuel source for any given intensity compared to a non-elite athlete. And so, you know, if non-elite athletes tried to replicate that kind of training, they would really struggle just to get through the session and be able to do the work required of the session. And therefore, they probably actually won't get the benefit out of the session that they would have otherwise had. So they may need to fuel at least to the level that they need more appropriately than you know, an elite athlete can get away with on occasion. We also talked about the fact that because the overall calorie and carbohydrate needs of elite athletes are higher than not elite athletes, the elite athletes obviously need to eat a lot more food and along with that potentially comes fiber. And so they actually may need more refined or processed foods to support the need to get in those calories without the fiber intake adding up to something enormous. And you add on to that sort of the practical constraints around travel and racing away from home, and all of a sudden you see why the elite athletes may need to rely more on processed and convenience type foods. And again, just because the pros are doing that doesn't necessarily mean the rest of us need to eat that way. Um, you know, we don't have those same constraints. We're not trying to eat the same amount of calories necessarily. And so we need to stop and think, well, are they doing that because that's required to be a good athlete or are they doing that because that's what's required to support that volume of training? The other food that Greg mentioned uh, and he makes use of quite a lot is what we call the supplementary sports food. So these are things like your sports drinks, your gels, your bars, both energy bars and protein bars. The protein powders that may come along with carbohydrate is more of a meal supplement rather than necessarily just purely protein. 
and then things like the ready-to-drink liquid meal supplements and those sorts of things. So again, you may see elite athletes making a lot of use of these particular products when you look around online, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of us should do that. I mean, there's nothing magical about those products. They're just using them as a convenient way to get a lot of calories and a lot of carbs in, in most cases carbs, quickly and conveniently, which matches the, the reality of their training load and their life situation. And then finally, there is that misconception that athletes at the elite and professional level use heaps of different pills, potions, and powders in terms of supplements. But what we find is that you know the elite athletes have a lot more support to help them with their supplement choices usually. You know, there's a sports dietitian or someone similar like that working with them. And not to say that non-elite athletes don't get that support, but they obviously have to go out and seek it and pay for it themselves. And because of that, the elite athletes often make wise supplement choices and more informed supplement choices so they may use a smaller number of supplements but use them in a very specific way very scientifically focused and they have to be careful of you know potential anti-doping rule violations in that you know the supplement could be potentially contaminated or it just contains as a normal ingredient a banned substance in there as well so another thing that they have to to sort of think about and so you see online a lot of athletes you know, talking up or promoting supplements, particularly with the affiliate marketing that's sort of gone crazy with YouTube and Instagram in particular. And so in that scenario, you know, it might appear that athletes are using all these different supplements, but in fact, a lot of them aren't actually taking the supplements that they're promoting, or they're only taking them at certain times of the year, or they look like they're promoting a whole supplement range, but they may only use one product from that range so just take that with a bit of a grain of salt and bear in mind just because the athlete uses this particular sports food or electrolyte or vitamin supplement or whatever doesn't mean you need to take that to be at the elite level it might mean that they're just being paid to do it or say it or they need it to support that training load but the rest of us that aren't doing that training load don't need that level of support yep yep Nice. And to follow on from this one, to give a nice example, we are going to be joined by an athlete I think you've worked with now, Jeremy Peacock. Yeah. Yep. So Jeremy is an elite paratriathlete who actually finished third at World Championships last year and was part of the team, the the mixed relay team that won the gold medal there as well in Abu Dhabi. So Jeremy was an age group triathlete and then got classified in terms of para triathlon category and and has moved into that in the last couple of years so he's a really good person to chat to because he's sort of experienced this from both sides of the fence both as an age grouper and now into the the more elite side of things where he's doing a lot more training a lot more travel and a lot more racing so yeah it'll be super interesting to chat to to jez about you know how he sees that kind of relationship with food and his nutritional needs change as he's gone from an age grouper to an elite athlete over that period of time Awesome. And a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate it. And remember also that there's now more than 50 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. 
most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. And if you do want to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are constantly nagging you about a particular nutrition question for their training or racing, and you've already heard it on the podcast, you might like to handball them over to us and we'll help get them off your backs and onto ours. We'd love the extra support. Otherwise, we will love and leave you and look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks' time. See you then.